yo, yo. Will y'all stand and worship with us? We're gonna. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. That's normally what I do, but tonight I get the privilege to speak to you. So, uh, welcome to Genesis. My name uh, is. That was very distracting. Thank you. My name is Jacob, and. Uh, <laughs> Here we go. Uh, for the third time, my name is Jacob, and uh, I'm normally the worship leader here, uh, but like I said, I get, tonight I get the privilege to speak to you, and uh, I'm incredibly excited, but also, if you can tell, maybe just a little bit nervous, because uh, I don't normally do this. Normally, uh, I get to hide behind an instrument, and so <laughs> to get the nerves out, we're going to play a game, all right? So uh, to let you know me a little, get to know me a little better, uh, we're going to play a quick game called Two Truths and a lie. It's very, very simple. I'm going to tell you three facts about me, and you have to guess which one is a lie. So, here we go. The very first one, I can play more than five instruments. So, you always see me up here. I can play a lot of instruments. Can I play five or more? Number two, I was born in Illinois. If you know me, you know I've been all over but was I born in Illinois? Number three, I have one biological brother and four step-siblings. I can't say anything about that. That's either true or false. So which one do you guys think? Let's hear it. Which is the lie? Number two? Three, I got one, three, one. Two. Okay, the majority is two. And number two is actually, number two is actually true. Uh, number one was the lie. I can only play four instruments. I can play acoustic, bass, electric, and piano, but I cannot play the drums. That's the missing piece. Uh, but I'll give you all another try. Let's try it again. Uh, so number one, I have won more than five different golf tournaments in my life. Number two, I've caught a shark before while fishing. And number three, at one point in my life, I was insta-famous. What's the lie? What's the lie? So the majority of people say three. Unfortunately, that was not the lie. Um, which means, uh, yes, at one point in my life, I was Instagram famous. The lie was I've never caught a shark while fishing. Um, but at one point in my life, I was Instagram famous. And uh, I used to post videos of myself singing songs. And uh, like I had a bunch of followers and it was great. But the worst part of all of this is that uh, I was featured on a page called Cute Country Boys. <laughs> and uh, got a picture to prove it. I don't know if you can see it, but about 60 pounds ago, that was me. A couple tanning beds later. And uh, a lot of hours in the gym, that was, that was me. <sighs> There's no going back now. <laughs> Can't do anything about it now. So clearly, uh, this has set the tone for my life because I'm 25 now and I have a mullet. So <laughs> clearly, I peaked at the age of 21. Uh, well, like I said, I'm incredibly excited uh, to welcome you to Genesis here tonight. 
Here at Genesis, we believe in having open doors and open hearts. So tonight, I hope that you felt welcomed, invited, and I hope that you felt comfortable. And I also hope that you came with an open heart because you have been prayed and you've been prepared for. So we're glad you're here. And uh, like I've said plenty times, <laughs> speaking is not necessarily my thing. And, and as I was preparing for this message, uh, my mind kind of wandered, as it always does, what kind of preacher would I be? I've, I've literally never preached before in my entire life. So I was like, what, what kind of preacher would I be? You know, there's all kinds of different preachers. Uh, some are the very intellectual, very deep in thought, you know, where like you walk out pondering the meaning of your life and the world's biggest mysteries and, and you walk out way more confused than when you came in. And then, you know, you have the, uh, to put it nicely, the very long-winded preachers. I promise that won't be me. But every 10 minutes they tell you like, oh, well, I'm about to close this out. And they go on for like 30 minutes more and then it's, I'm about to close this out. Uh, and eventually you want, you want them to get to the point where they uh, just let God's people go. Like Pharaoh, you know. Yeah, that was, that was, that was good. And then, you know, you have the, uh, the touch somebody preachers. And this is probably my favorite one because it's so weird. But, you know, like touch 17 people and tell them to get ready, ready to receive a word from the Lord. I've always wondered, like, why on earth is it such a random number? Like, touch 11 people, touch four people, touch 23 and a half people and tell them to get ready. Doesn't, I never understood it. And, and I love when, when they do, like, the praise breaks. Like, we're about to have a 47-second praise break. Like, I, is there some kind of super in-depth, like, preacher equation to figure out the number of seconds you're allowed to have these breaks? I, I guess they don't share that information with the worship leaders. But... And then you have the preachers where they're in mid-thought and then they bust out into a random song. And I honestly, I kind of thought this would be me, but I, it won't be. They'll, they'll go into a verse and be like, 2 Corinthians verse 9, Jesus says, my grace is sufficient. And all of a sudden they're singing amazing grace and you, you don't know where on earth that came from. Uh, but eventually I think I found myself identifying with the kind of preacher that needs reaction. You know, I need the audience to talk back to me in a good way. And uh, do any of y'all know Maurice Brown? He's, okay, if you don't know him, he leads worship with us. And he's literally the ultimate hype man. Like, we'll be standing on stage and he stands next to me. And I'm getting ready to lead a song. And he'll turn to me and just shout like, oh, Jacob, you better sing. And like, I don't know why. <laughs> I don't have, a, I literally don't know why. But for some reason, it gets me so hype. And I'm like, I'm ready to go as soon as he says that. So tonight, feel free to talk back. If you think something was good, say, oh, that's good. If you think it was bad, keep it to yourself. Um, but hopefully that'll kind of break down uh, the invisible barrier that can sometimes be between us. Uh, and tonight we're going to continue our series, The Moral of the Story. Uh, but before we do that, I'd like to pray. So if you would pray with me. Father, we, we love you. We thank you. And Lord, I thank you for this opportunity that you've given me. And even though... Uh, I'm a little nervous, Father. I pray that you would calm my nerves, that you would speak to, to me and through me, Father, that you would just show me um, what you would have for me to say, Lord, and I pray that people will leave here uh, changed and, and hearing a word from you, Father, and in your name, amen, amen. So, like I said, uh, I'm gonna sit down because you get to sit down, so I'm gonna sit down. Uh, like I said, uh, we're going to continue our series 
uh, where we're looking at different parables throughout the Bible. And um, a parable is, is simply just a story that Jesus would use to illustrate uh, a moral or a spiritual lesson uh, throughout the New Testament. And uh, tonight we're going to look at the story found in Matthew of the unforgiving or the ungrateful servant. And this story starts off in chapter 18. And it starts with one of the disciples, Peter, coming to Jesus and asking him a question. So let's read. This is uh, Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? So we start right off into this, and, and Peter is coming to Jesus, and he's asking him a simple question. You know, how many times should I forgive someone who sins against me? And you see, up until this point in Scripture, the only thing that people knew were laws. They grew up learning and listening and, and trying to follow, follow the law of Moses, which was a bunch of different uh, rules and, and regulations and obligations that were found in the first five books of the Bible. So Peter must have thought, like, there was a rule about forgiveness. And in those days, the rabbis, who were just religious teachers, uh, they said that there was. The rabbis taught that you were to forgive someone who sinned against you or offended you, but you only had to forgive them three times. If they offended you a fourth time, too bad, so sad, you're in the clear, I guess. And, and Peter knew this. So why would Peter ask if he should forgive seven times, knowing that the rabbis taught to only forgive three times? Throughout uh, Scripture, Peter has built up uh, this reputation of wanting to be a man of mighty faith, but, but often failing. This is the same guy who stepped out on the raging seas just to sink down a couple steps later. The same guy that rebuked Jesus when he revealed his death and resurrection, saying that it would never happen. The same guy who cut off a guard's ear in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the same one who denied Jesus three times. So Peter, doing only as Peter can do, he tries to impress Jesus with not only doubling the number of times you are to forgive someone, but he's also using the number seven, which was uh, the number that symbolized perfection back in those times. But Jesus responds in verse 22 saying, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Peter was, you see, Peter was trying to, um, he was trying to get religious with Jesus, but, but Jesus was trying to give him revelation. And, and let me tell you a little secret. Jesus was always about revelation over religion. And I, I don't need to get started on this because literally I could go on this all night. Uh, but all throughout the Bible, people tried using religious traditions against Jesus and he continued to break them every single time. It was religious leaders who wanted him killed because he broke the mold of their religious system. He loved the broken. He saved the tax collectors and the prostitutes. He healed the sick on the Sabbath, mind you. And this was more than the religious leaders could take. Jesus was always about revelation over religion. And Peter was caught up in the religious tradition of forgiveness that you only had to forgive someone a limited amount of times. And although he had been with Jesus for some time at this point, he was still thinking in the limited terms of the law rather than the unlimited terms of God's grace. And maybe when we get past the religious traditions that we hold so dear, we might actually experience some revelations on this side of heaven. And Jesus is about to explain exactly what he means in this parable. So let's read. This is uh, verses 23 through 25. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold, along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. So we start off in the story with the king, and, and he decided to um, 
settle all of his accounts with, with his servants who owed him money. And it wasn't uncommon for people back in the day to owe other people things, kind of like it's not uncommon for people nowadays to owe other people things, like to owe the bank for their house or for their car or to owe a credit card company. But this particular servant had racked up a debt of 10,000 talents or a few million dollars. And obviously this was much more than he could afford to pay back. So the king ordered that him and his entire family should be sold in order to help pay off some of that debt, as well as seizing everything that the man owed. Owned, sorry. Let's continue reading and see what happens. This is verse 26 and 27. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me and I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him, and he released him and forgave his debt. So we get to this point in the story, and we see that the servant, who was probably terrified of what was about to happen, he falls down and begs on his knees for more time. And the Bible says that the king was, was filled with pity for him, and he released him. And now, if you put your shoes, or you've put yourself in the shoes of the servant, this has got to be probably like the best day of your life, right? You, you just received the biggest blessing of your life. You were just held against your will with your entire family waiting to be sold off to settle the debt that you owed. And you cry out, master, master, be patient with me and I will pay it all. Just give me some time. And not only does the king say, okay, and release you, he forgives your entire debt. Everything that you had previously owed, it's now wiped away and you have a fresh start. You would think that his servant would be like shouting and thanking the king and just going berserk, right? I mean, he was just forgiven a debt of multiple millions of dollars. Imagine if your bank called you and was like, hey, all those stupid credit card purchases, wiped clean, it's done. Uh, That house that you just bought, paid off. That car you just bought, paid off. I mean, he's gotta be ecstatic, right? I have uh, kind of a cool story about this uh, Growing up, my parents uh, didn't believe in, in giving away anything for free. Uh, you had to work for it. So uh, my parents were the typical, very hard-nosed, not-going-to-baby-you type. And so uh, for my entire life, I was never really given anything besides food and a place to live. And I don't say that to be dramatic, but it's true. <laughs> uh, so if I wanted something above, like, the bare minimum, I had to buy it myself. I had to get a job, save money, and buy it myself. So I had to buy my first everything. I bought my first cell phone. Shout out to track phone. I bought my first and only gaming console that I've ever owned, a Nintendo 64. And I also bought my first car. Uh, my first car was a 1994 Toyota Camry. And uh, her name was Sarah Beth. Harrison knows what I'm talking about. He's laughing back there. And it was literally the best car I've ever owned. I loved that car so much. It was, it was made the same year I was born, so we instantly had a connection. And so when I bought it, the car was 18 years old, and it had 240,000 miles on it. And, uh, hey, I'm, I'm proud to say that I had that car for five years, and by the time it was done, it had almost 300,000 miles on it, and it had moved halfway across the country with me. So she did well. But <laughs> I moved here uh, back in 2015, and uh, during my first semester at CSU, I got into an accident. Um, I was driving out in front of CSU, and, and it was raining, and, and the roads were very slick, and, and the lady in front of me supposedly heard sirens in the middle of the intersection, and so she slammed on her brakes. 
And although I slammed on mine, my car was 20 years old and had 300,000 miles on it. And, and it was slippery, and, and my brakes were literally awful. So my car didn't stop. It, it kept going. <laughs> and eventually, I, I rear-ended her. Um, so we get out. Everyone is okay. Like, nothing's wrong. Her brand-new Jeep barely even had a scratch on it. But my car was torn apart. It was bad. Um, and so I called my dad. I didn't know what else to do. He said, call the police, you know, do what you need to do. So I did, and, and the cops showed up, and, and they did what they do, and, and they asked for all of our information, you know, your license, uh, your insurance, and all that stuff. And um, as I'm processing what had happened, I'm, I'm kind of shook still. Like, And the cop comes up to me, and he says, sir, you know that your insurance is expired, right? And I'm like, no, <laughs> if I knew that, I probably would have fixed it. Uh, but apparently my insurance had expired. It was set up for auto payment, but it was set up for auto payment out of my bank account back in Missouri that I closed when I moved and didn't think about it. And of course, I didn't get any of the notices because they were sent to my address in Missouri that I didn't live at anymore. And my mom, wanting to respect my privacy, wouldn't open my mail. And so literally had no idea. So long story short, I end up getting sued. Yes. Uh, so my first couple months in Charleston and my car is totaled and I'm getting sued for over $3,000. And I had just moved here. So like I didn't have a job. I didn't have any money. And I call my mom who's, who's back in Missouri and I tell her everything that have happened. And of course I get lectured and lectured and lectured. And, and she tells me, she literally said this, well, I guess you're going to jail since you can't pay what you owe. And like I said earlier, very hard-nosed family. So at this point, I, I'm literally losing it. Like, I don't know if you're, like, if you go to jail for that or not, but I definitely thought I was. I'm like, my life is over. I have to drop out of college, blah, blah, blah. I was freaking out. Uh, but little did I know, my mom had actually already been in contact with a law firm who was suing me and uh, SEDMV, and she had already taken care of all of it. She had already paid the $3,000, and it was all good. And, of course, she didn't tell me, so I got to sit and think about this for a couple weeks. And uh, after she let me sit in my anguish for so long, uh, I get a letter in the mail from the law firm and from the state of South Carolina uh, saying that, that everything was taken care, care of. And I got, like, the release paperwork or all the legal stuff. I don't know what it is. Um, so I call my mom, and I'm, like, extremely excited and happy. I'm like, Mom, you'll never believe this. Like, I just, I just got a letter in the mail. It's taken care of. And she's like, yeah, I know, I paid it. <laughs> I'm like, I, I, I legit, I remember that, that moment. I, I couldn't, I had, there was no words to describe what I was feeling. Like, one, I was very humbled because I was like, wow, I'm 22 years old and my mom's paying my bills. Uh, and, and I was very humbled, but I was also excited. And, and if the servant was anything like me, he's, he's got to be feeling incredibly grateful or incredibly thankful or, or maybe even just a little bit happy, right? Let's continue reading. This is uh, verses 28 through 30. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant repayment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me and I will pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. So we get to this point, and we see uh, that the servant was released, um, and he immediately goes to another servant who owed him some money, 
And uh, the Bible says that he owed him a hundred denarii or a couple thousand dollars. And, and he immediately begins to choke him. And he demanded that he pays back what he owes. Uh, but just like his own story, the debtor, uh, he begs for more time. And be patient, be patient, I will pay back everything. But he couldn't wait. So he had the man tossed into prison until the debt was paid in full. Oftentimes, uh, when we receive a, a blessing, I think we're so quick to flaunt it, but not so quick to reciprocate it for someone else. Uh, we're, we're so quick to receive the blessing and, and, not so, and so reluctant to give it to someone else. Let's continue reading. This is um, the end of the story, 31 through 35. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called the man called the man he had forgiven and said, you evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. So we get to the end of the story um, and we see that the king gets word of what had happened. And he calls a servant and he rebukes him. And he says, you evil servant, I forgave you. How could you not forgive? Shouldn't you have had mercy just like I had mercy on you? And the servant eventually ends up being sent back to prison and he's tortured until he can pay the amount in full of what he owed. And Jesus tells us a story to, uh, to tell us how vital it is to forgive. And he's telling us that forgiveness should be in proportion to the amount forgiven. You see, once we understand the incredible amount of debt that we have been forgiven, we'll grasp this concept. And as receivers of mercy, we should be dispensers of enormous grace. The first servant had been forgiven all, and he then in turn should have forgiven all out of the overflow of his heart and out of the overflow of the grace that he had already received. And in the same way, anyone who has called upon the name of the Lord shall be saved and has been forgiven all of the debt owed. Therefore, when someone offends or sins against us, we should be willing to forgive them from a heart of gratitude for the grace that we have already received. But the problem is we want to make a rule out of forgiveness, just like Peter, and we're completely missing the point of grace. When we understand what we've been forgiven and the enormity of what Christ has saved us from, there's no way we can hold a grudge against someone else who sinned against us. We can't keep a spreadsheet document, keeping track of the number of times we forgive someone, saying, oh, that's number 489, you've got one more. Like, God doesn't keep a spreadsheet of all the times he's forgiven us as if his mercy and his grace could be contained into a number or contained into an Excel document. Like, that's not how it works. And that's what Jesus is trying to get us to understand through this parable. Oftentimes, we hold grudges against other people, refusing to forgive them as if the forgiveness is for them. Have you ever heard the saying, forgiveness isn't for the other person, it's for you? And what I want you to get tonight is this. The servant who refused to forgive was the one who ended up locked in prison while the debtor walked around free. It's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. So many times we try to lock others into prisons by holding a grudge against them saying, you've done something to hurt me or you owe me this and so in turn, I'm gonna hold this over your head or I'm gonna lock you up until you can make right what you've wronged and pay me back in full. But let me tell you, that's extremely dangerous because when you refuse to forgive someone, all you're doing is shutting the prison door behind you and throwing away the key. And you're doing exactly what the servant did and you will end up exactly how the servant ended up. 
you'll be locked back into a prison that you've already been freed from. Let me say that again. You will be locked back into a prison that you have already been freed from. Hear me out. The blood of Jesus has set you free, point blank, period. The blood of Jesus sets you free. And just like the servant was held captive once, so were we. We were dead in our sins, bearing a debt that we could not repay. But Jesus stepped in, forgives us our debt, and gives us a clean slate, just like the servant. At the beginning of the story, he was held captive, being forced to pay back a debt that he could never repay. But grace and mercy set him free. And grace and mercy has set us free. But what he failed to understand, and what I hope we don't fail to understand tonight, is that he had to give away that same grace and that mercy that he received, and we must do likewise. Had he forgave, he wouldn't be locked back up into a prison being tortured for the rest of his life. And some of us in here tonight will end up being tortured for the rest of our lives, being locked back into a place that we've already been freed from if we continue to refuse to give away the same grace and forgiveness that we have already received. Forgiveness is not for the other person. It is for you. Forgiveness is the key to unlocking the prison doors that have bound us up for so long. And once you acknowledge how much you've been forgiven of and you experience the love and the grace of God, you'll be much quicker to forgive others. And maybe in this process, you might actually find yourself free. Those who have been forgiven of much, forgive much. I'm gonna invite the, uh, the band to come back up, but I don't want you to miss this. Uh, we're gonna go into a time of prayer and communion, uh, but before that, some of us in here tonight need to be reflecting on the grace and mercy that we've been given, and in turn, forgiving those who have hurt us and letting go of grudges that have bound us up for so long. Be free tonight. Communion is a time that, uh, that we can reflect on the amount of love that Jesus has for us. The bread symbolizes his body, which is broken and bruised for us, and the juice represents his blood that was shed on the cross. It took away all of our sin and all of our shame. Jesus commands us to do this in remembrance of him. So before you partake in it, would you take a minute and spend some time in prayer? And when you're ready, you can come up, take a piece of bread, dip it in the juice, and take it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. God, we thank you for your forgiveness that we didn't earn and we don't deserve. Lord, I pray that you would continue to place it on our hearts to give away the same grace, the same mercy that you've given us first. Father, I pray for freedom in this place tonight. I pray for changed hearts, changed lives. Would you continue to speak to us, Father, as we take communion?